I wonder how many of y'all are conspiracy theorists. Now, maybe I'm a bit naive, okay? And maybe one day I'm gonna realize just how foolish I've always been, but I have a hard time with conspiracy theories, with conspiracy theories. But I have some friends that are in my life that very much believe that the government is hiding aliens from us. They very much believe that Bitcoin is like the mark of the beast and it's fixing to undo this whole economy of the world. I have some friends that believe and are convinced that the earth is flat and that it is an, a government conspiracy to, so that we can have NASA and they can pocket all of our billions of dollars that go to, that they believe literally, quite literally, that, that down in Antarctica, there is a, a government guarded uh, fortress there that is guarding the very ends of the earth that we could walk off of. Now, some of y'all are probably here and you're like, yeah, man, that's what, exactly right but I have trouble, right? But the truth is, is that we love nothing more than a good conspiracy theory. You go on Netflix and you just begin to scroll through all the docu-series. The majority of the docu-series on Netflix are all about conspiracy theory. They're about JFK and whether or not Hitler's actually still alive and you know, all of these various things. And it's good for entertainment, but it's terrible for Bible reading. Because what we've come to do is we've come to take our fascination, and it's not a new fascination, but we have come to take our fascination with conspiracy theories and codes and decoding all of these, these secrets beneath the, between the letters and between the words. And we've taken that, that, that thinking and philosophy and we've applied that to the way that we read the Bible. And so now the way that many of us are beginning to read the Bible is not as instructions to receive, not as life to gain, not as salvation to experience, not as joy to know, but rather as a code that we need to crack. That we begin to look through numbers and we begin to see things that aren't really there. And we're trying to read between the lines and reading between the lines, we miss what the lines actually say. And in the process, the Bible ceases to be a source of authority in our lives and begins to be a source of speculation in our lives. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to obey speculation. That we take our, our, our fascination with conspiracy theories, we apply it to the Bible. And by applying it to the Bible, we allow ourselves to be let off the hook to obey the Bible because the Bible isn't primarily instruction. The Bible isn't primarily teaching. The Bible isn't primarily telling us what God has shown us. The Bible becomes a series of irreverent myths for us to uncrack. And so this morning, what I want us to look at is I want us to see what the Bible says about how clear the Bible is. And in the process, I want us to see three different descriptions of the speech of God. Three different descriptions of the speech of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of your Bible. If you don't go there very often, one, two, three, four, five is pretty easy to find. It's the final book of what we call the Pentateuch, the, the law, the books of Moses. So if you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to begin in verse 11. And it says this. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. 
It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. The first thing that I want us to see this morning about the speech of God is that it is described as being with grace, that God speaks with grace. Now, if you understand what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy, it kind of sets this whole thing up. So if you'll remember in the people of Israel, God has delivered them out of Egypt. He's used Moses and raised Moses up and he's delivered them with all the miraculous plagues and divided the sea and then all of these things. And he has brought them and he takes them all the way to the edge of Canaan. And he says, this is a land that flows with milk and honey. This is a land that I have already given over to you. You just go and get it. You just go and get it. I'm not telling you the how. I'm not telling you all the logistics. I'm not telling you the the full scope of the plan. But what I'm telling you is that that land is your land because I, your God, the God that delivered you from Pharaoh, the God that split the sea, the God that fed you in the wilderness, I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am going to deliver this over to you. So you take my word for it, you go. And do you remember what happened? He sent, Moses sends 12 spies into the land and 10 of them come and they said, this is a land of giants. Like, like we're White Plains High School and that's the University of Alabama. Like we can't beat them. And they get nervous and they back down. And so God says, he brings a curse against his own covenant people. And he says, no one from that generation will enter into the promised land and experience the land that is, rich, that is filled with milk and honey. No one will experience the full goodness, in other words, of my promises to my people because they defied me, because they did not have faith in me. They did not believe that I would deliver them even though I had already delivered them. They did not believe that I would provide for them even though I have already provided for them. And so here is Moses, he, and he is on the end of his life, nearing the deathbed, most of that generation by this point already dead and he realizes that a new generation has received the baton and is about to be led by Joshua into the promised land and so he delivers Deuteronomy as a sermon to the people of God to prepare them so that they would not revisit the sins of their father and so that they might fully enjoy the promises of their God. And so he's here and he's preaching to them and he begins to give them a series of of commandments and instructions so that they can know exactly how it is. They can experience the full blessing of God and avoid the curse of God. And and, And these are quite elemental things. He'll come and he'll say, look, the greatest commandment of everything that I can tell you is that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. We get that from Deuteronomy, right? John preached that a couple of weeks ago. He he tells them, when your neighbor's coming through and your neighbor's hungry, feed your neighbor. Pretty simple stuff, right? When, When God requires of you a commitment and a covenant, hold up your end of the deal. Don't seek to divorce your wife. You have made a covenant before God between you and her and you are to hold fast to that commitment. You are to live generously 
You are to live honorably. You are to live with integrity. You are to hold up the covenants of the Lord and you are to teach them to the next generation and the generation after that, that you are to be a standard bearer of faithfulness. And if you will be a standard bearer of faithfulness, if you will keep these very simple words of the Lord, then you will be able to go into the promised land and you will be able to thrive. Now, what's remarkable is that if you lay this about against the backdrop of the culture uh, in the ancient Near East at the time, this stands out as an example. So the gods of the time, they were not personal gods, okay? It was the sun, it was the rain, it was, it was the, the earth, it was the, the seas. And so the gods would come and they would be happy with you and you didn't know why they were happy with you. They would be angry with you and you didn't know why they were angry with you. They would come against you and you didn't know why they were coming against you. There would, be, there would be famine and you didn't know why there was famine and there would be prosperity and you didn't know why there was prosperity. And so you were left your own devices to figure out how it is that you could please all of these other gods. How it is that you could make the God happy so that the crops would come in. How it is that you could make the God happy so that the sea would be calm and provide plenty of fish. How it is that you could do all. And so they, were, they would take, they would offer, sometimes sacrifice their children in these pagan rituals. They would cut themselves with swords and hope that their God might pay attention to them if they were to make such a gruesome offering. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 18, right? They would make these offerings hoping that their gods would come and sometimes their gods would listen and sometimes they wouldn't and sometimes there would be plenty and sometimes there would be not enough. But they never heard from their God. Their God never told them what he expected. Their God never told them who they were. Their God never told them who he was except the God of the Hebrews. Except the God of the Hebrews. In the beginning was God. And he created the heavens and the earth and he made man on the sixth day and he placed him in the garden. And what did God do? He spoke to him. From the beginning, this is who you are. This is what you do. This is who I am. This is what you avoid. The book of Genesis opens with the speech of God. And by opening with the speech of God, it opens with the grace of God that God would tell you who you are and who he is and how you can relate with him and how you can enjoy him and know him and know how to thrive and, and know how to fit within the design that he has made and know how to exist in a joyful relationship with him. This is grace from the beginning. And what Moses is wanting them to see is your God has spoken unlike all of the other gods and he has spoken with you to, with words that are not too hard for you. Words that are able for you to understand. If you accept, if you accept that verse 11 is talking about the living God, if you accept that, that this is the true God over all of the universe, the one who sits upon his throne and reigns over the oceans and draws the boundaries for them. If you accept that this is, this is the living God that perched the moon and built up Everest out of his own dirt with his own speech, this, this is a description of just how wonderful he really is. This God who is so mighty, this God who is so sovereign, this God that is so holy is kind. He speaks to you. 
He's relatable. He's not distant. Many in our society today, they describe God, they, they would acknowledge that there is a God. They may call themselves agnostic or they may call themselves deists, but they would acknowledge that there, there has to be some original life source out there somewhere. But they, design, they, they describe him as a clockmaker that he builds the clock and he winds it up and he lets it begin to tick and then he steps back and he watches the world just play out in front of him and all of us keep crashing into each other like ants in a little ant bed that's been stepped on. But, Genesis, but Deuteronomy chapter 30 is describing something completely different. That God has come to you and God has spoken to you and God has said exactly what he needs for you to know and what you need for you to know and that God has said it in a way that is not too hard. In other words, God wants you to understand your life. God wants you to understand who he is. God wants you to understand how wonderful he is. God wants you to understand the dignity that comes with being made in the image of God. God wants you to understand that. And to have a God so great and a God so powerful and a God so transcendent to want you to understand things as basic as that, as that does that not communicate how wonderful he is? One of the coolest parts about Deuteronomy is who's it, who it's addressed to. In Deuteronomy chapter one, verse one, the, the whole book opens like this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel, all Israel. These are not just the words that Moses spoke to the priests. These are not just words that Moses spoke to the elite. These, is not, these are not just words that Moses spoke to the intellectuals or to the judges or to the, those that were the elders gathered around him. These are the words that Moses has spoken to all of Israel as the mouthpiece of God. He spoke this to the children and he spoke this to the elderly. He spoke this to the intellectuals and he spoke this to the simple. He spoke this to the wealthy and he spoke this to the poor. He spoke this to the Levites and he spoke this to the Danites. He spoke this to all of Israel gathered around because all of Israel has a relationship with Yahweh. All of Israel knows the wonder of this God and God cares about them all. And so God has spoken so that the children can know. God has spoken so the simple can understand. God has spoken so that all of Israel can come under his word and know what he has to say. See, the Bible is written, is written to ordinary people in ordinary languages. The Bible is written to, in, to ordinary people in ordinary languages. We think about Hebrew and Greek and all of that stuff when we study the Bible, but in its day, that was ordinary. That was ordinary. And it's amazing that you think about Paul, he opens up his letter to the Ephesians by saying the saints of Ephesus, all the saints, not the pastor of Ephesus, not the elders of Ephesus, not the deacons of Ephesus, not the wise of Ephesus, the saints of Ephesus, all of those in the church. He opens his letter to the church at Philippi, to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. The word of God was given to all of the people of God. And you know what that means? You don't need a Yoda to tell you what this means. You don't need some guru sitting Indian style up on a hill to tell you what the word of God is. It's been given to you. It's been given to all of you. You can read it for yourself. You can read it for yourself. 
We need one another and we need community. And there is skill in reading the Bible. I'm not diminishing any of that. But the truth is, is that if we have the spirit of God and we have the word of God, then we have access to the throne of God. That we have been given the wonderful grace of who the Lord is to know him and to seek him. And to, as much as we know him right now, to know him better tomorrow. And as good as we know him tomorrow, to know him better next year. Is it any wonder that the praise book of the Bible, the Psalms, and Psalm chapter one opens like this. Blessed is the man who delights in the law and meditates on it day and night. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder? Because your Bible is proof that God loves you. Your Bible is proof that God loves you. And if your Bible is proof that God loves you, you ought to love your Bible. You ought to love your Bible. See, what you're going to experience time and again in your life is the same thing that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. The serpent came to Adam and Eve and he undermined the word of God by twisting the word of God. And he comes and he says, did God really say? Did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that you would surely die? And he's going to come to you and he's going to say, did God really say that sexual ethics matter? Did God really define gender roles? Did God really clarify what marriage is supposed to look like? Did God really clarify what parenting is supposed to look like? Did God really say, did God really say, and you will be able to look back to him with confidence, assurance, and joy and say, God has said it. And he said it to me, said it to me. God speaks by his grace, church. The second description that I want you to see is that God speaks with clarity. God speaks with clarity. It's no secret that our generation is in the midst of an identity crisis, right? I mean, our, our, our generation is in the midst of an identity crisis. And you can see this by the experts that we surround ourselves with, right? We have psychologists that are analyzing dreams and monitoring brainwaves. We have self-help books and motivational speakers that are giving us all the principles that we need so that we can live the life that we've always dreamed of. Even within the life of the church, we've taken this modern philosophy and we've applied it to our theology. We've taken our modern identity crisis and we've brought it into who we are as the people of God so that we aren't really sure about that either. And so we, we come and we approach the will of God. And as often as we talk about the will of God, we talk about it as though it is this carrot dangling above us up in the stratosphere where it's always just out of reach and where we can't quite get it. If God would just tell me, if God would just show me, if God would just explain. Brothers and sisters, God isn't so good to have a plan for your life and not yet good enough to show you what it is. It's like we believe that God is good enough to love us and have a plan for us, but not so good to actually ever show it to us. Now, I don't think you get a, an employee handbook, at, you know, in the cradle where the Lord says, all right, Cody, this is what it's going to go. This is how it's going to go with you. I don't even want that. But in his timing and in his way and through his word, God speaks with clarity so that we can know what his will is. In fact, you will find throughout the New Testament a number of different times in which it literally says, the will of God is. 
The will of God is. The trouble isn't that God hasn't told us what his will is. The trouble is, is that we've never read it. And when we've read it, it's not been what we've wanted it to be. But the Bible says with clarity, the will of God is. But now the gods of self-help and the gods of self-esteem and the gods of mysticism and the gods of modern psychology are no different than the gods of, ancient, of the ancient Near East. You had these, these indifferent, distant gods and they would come and they were always hanging out in the shadows, dangling over you the potential for prosperity dangling over you the potential for conquest, dangling over you how you might succeed and how you might reach. But Moses comes and Moses says, you don't need somebody that can go up into heaven for you. You don't need somebody that can go across the oceans for you and to find out the answers as if they're hidden somewhere. What does he say? The Lord has brought the word near to you. The Lord has brought the word near to you. Oh, brothers and sisters, is there any wonder why John opens his gospel and, sit and calls Jesus the word and says the word became flesh and dwelt among us? This is the gospel. We don't have to climb to heaven and discover the will of God. We don't have to by our effort get across the oceans and find the will of God. God has come to us. The word has come near to us, even fulfilled in Christ Jesus as the word incarnate, the promise fulfilled, who has come and he has dwelt here among us to say, thus saith the Lord, that his will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. See, our friends and neighbors, shoot, many of us, we're feeling through the dark with our hands trying to live, aren't we? It's like when we live here, we're living in a cave. And we're, we got our hands out in front of us, but we can't see anything. And all we're doing is, is placing our hands over the cold crags of the rock. And we can feel the dampness in the air. And we know that there is tragedy lurking around every corner. And we just can't see the corners. And we're feeling our way around. And we're trying to navigate what it is to be a parent in a postmodern, post-Christian age. We're trying to navigate what it is to be a, a husband when we've never seen an honorable husband in our life before. What it means to be a, a wife when our mom wasn't the greatest wife in the world. And our whole generation is feeling its way through the dark. But do you realize that we've been given a light switch? We've been given a light switch. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Deuteronomy 6 says that these words are so simple that children can understand them. Deuteron uh, Psalm 119, 130 says that it imparts wisdom to the simple, that it doesn't matter your education level, it doesn't matter your IQ number, that you can understand the truth and rather than feeling your way through the dark, that you can illuminate your mind and see through the depths of this society and see through all of the questions and quandaries that are perplexing the intellectuals of our day simply by viewing them through the lens of the scripture. Now, I'm not telling you that everything in the Bible is the same, is as easy to understand as everything else. All of us know that's not true. But what I'm telling you is, is that the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to the essentials. That the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to the essentials. You may not know what the difference between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism is. And that's okay, y'all. That's okay. 
But if I were to go over to our preschool class this morning and I were to tell them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and with one minute of explanation, I could bet almost every single one of them would know exactly what I'm talking about. That when it comes to issues of life and death, when it comes to the issues of salvation and condemnation, when it comes to the essentials of the faith and how to live an honorable life in the presence of God, to the glory of God, the scriptures are crystal clear. So this morning, stop feeling your way through the dark. Stop walking and stumbling through this life and turn on the light. Turn on the light. How are you gonna have wisdom for your teenagers in the moment of crisis in their life unless you have stored away in the storehouses of your life the wisdom of God? How are you gonna shine a spotlight on your family as the patriarch or as the matriarch when everything comes apart unless you have stored inside of you the light of God so that you can flip on the light so we can say, my son, my daughter, let me help you. Oh, yes. Church, turn on the light and you can begin to navigate like an auto-focused lens, the gender issues of our day and the identity crisis and all of the confusion that is surrounding your house. And that brings us to the final description that we give of the, get from the speech of God and is that God speaks for a response. God speaks for a response. And really this is the main point that Moses is making. He's been building up to this since about chapter 28. And he's building up to it by showing a series of blessings and curses. And he's saying, look, if, if you will commit your way unto the Lord and you will walk with the Lord and you will devote yourself to these things that have come near to you and you will, you will commit your way, then he will defend you and he will protect you and you will flourish in ways that seem foreign to you right now. You will see him work in ways that you've never seen anything work in your whole life. You will see things come together that seemed impossible to come together. You've seen that before, haven't you? You, you will see... You will see uh, solution, uh, situations resolve in ways that you thought were totally unresolvable. You, you've seen that before. But if you go the way of your fathers, if you go up to the edge of the promised land and you see all the good things that God has done and then you believe that it all depends on you and you, you believe that it's all upon your shoulders and it's all about how strong you are and all about how wise you are, then surely you will fail. In other words, the word has come near to you the word is clear to you, but you got to do it. You have to do it. You have to live it. You have to obey it. You have to treasure it. You have to respond to it. And no response is a response. It's a response of rejection. It's a response of unbelief. It's a response of self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency. And so the question of when it comes to the word of God is how are you going to respond? What are you going to do with it? You see, if you can know God's will, and you can, then you must do God's will. You can know God's will. It's accessible to us. It's been given to us by grace. It's been given to us with clarity. And having received it by grace, being able to understand it as we are, then we have no excuse when it comes to disobedience. The only reason we don't obey is because we don't love it. It's because we don't want to do it. 
It's because we believe that we have a better way. It's because we believe that we have a happier way. It's because we believe that we have a more joyful way. And so Moses is looking and he's shaking them by the shoulders and he's saying, you can understand it, so do it, do it. And there's two different layers in which I want us to see what that means. The first thing is, is that if you can know it, it's your responsibility to actually learn it. If you can know it, it's your responsibility to actually learn. You're not gonna receive wisdom of God and the word of God through osmosis, okay? Like we can't put, like I wish I could, some of you like like Gayla, if I could go up against Gayla and just put my ear to hers and like let all of the scripture reading that she's done jump into my brain, that would be pretty fantastic. But it doesn't work like that, does it? You have the responsibility. It says that it is in your mouth and in your heart. What does that imply? that you've read it, that you've studied it, that you're meditating upon it, that you're pondering it, that you're saturated in it, that you're memorizing it, that you're treasuring it. That's what we do when we treasure things, isn't it? You see, the scriptures measure our affections. The scriptures measure our passion. The the scriptures give you a thermometer of your heart to show you what you love. Because whatever it is that you love, I guarantee you are a nut about research. How how many of y'all already know where Alabama's 2021 recruiting class stands? How many of y'all already know? How how many of y'all could tell me exactly when to plant Amanda Villa? Can you tell me what the Psalms say? Can, Can you tell me what Deuteronomy is about? It's a thermometer. It shows how serious you are about knowing God and loving God and enjoying God. And as I was thinking about this, y'all, if I'm just being honest with you, I was unraveled by it this morning. Yesterday, literally, I spent more time researching which toilet seat would be better for my house than I did reading the scriptures. That's literal. I am more concerned with a comfortable place for my backside than I am with knowing God. Wrap your mind around that. But it's a microcosm of who we are. We are more concerned with our entertainment and we are more concerned with our comfort and we are more concerned with our material possessions. We are more concerned with our kingdom here than we are with knowing who God is. And so we pick up the remote and we put down the Bible. It's a thermometer of your heart. So you can know it and you must do it. You must learn it because you can know it and you must do it because you can know it. It reminds me of what he says in Matthew chapter 11, which I think is one of the most piercing uh, passages in all the Bible. Like if I was to preach one sermon and I knew our whole community would be here, this is the text that I would go to. It says in Matthew chapter 11, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
Because Jesus had been there and Jesus had taught there and Jesus had been ministering there. They had access to the truth. They had access to the gospel. They had heard the way to eternal life and they had rejected it. The things of God had been close to them. The things of God had been at arm's length for them, but they had kept it there. And Jesus says that those who have heard and those that have seen and those that have access to the truth and access to the gospel and reject it still, that the judgment will be more severe because they had seen the glory of God and heard the grace of God and said, no, thank you. How many of us have Bibles bouncing around in our back seat? How many of us have Bibles collecting dust on our nightstands every single week? We have the word of God, the grace of God, the treasure of God, the glory of God at arm's length, but we keep it there. Oh, church, faith without works is dead. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.